Hey there, everyone. I'm Colin, and welcome back to the Product Uncensored Show. This is the show where we talk about all things product with product people focusing on Southeast Asia. At least we try to do that most of the time. We're at episode two today, and if this is your first time on the show, do check out our episode, uh, the first episode on YouTube, which I will link at the end, and I will also put in the description. Please note that we also have podcasts available for the shows, so please find them over on Anchor or on Spotify. And if you have enjoyed our shows so far, please give us a like or subscribe, and please do it now because I know that you will forget after the show is over. Now, on today's show, I have another special guest. He's a very well-journeyed elder statesman in the product management scene and someone that I have come to respect a lot. He's none other than... Ken Chin. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hi, Colin. Great to be here. Yes. And uh, you are over in the UK, right? Yeah. So I just got back to London a few weeks ago. Very nice. How's the weather there? Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I live in the Twickenham area. And because of the lockdown, there's hardly any airplanes from Heathrow going back and forth. So you can hear the birds chirping and it's really nice out here. Very nice, very nice. Well, I didn't call you on the show to talk about the birds, so let's talk about product stuff. So mm -hmm. let's start with your CV, right? Your CV is way too decorated, way too accomplished for, for, for us to go through in detail. But one of the things that really stood out to me is that you've been stationed in at least four countries now, right? Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Australia, Singapore, UK, Malaysia. Yeah, Did I miss correct. out anymore? All right. So uh, that, I spent quite a bit of time in Silicon Valley as well, but I wasn't living there. I was just visiting uh, during right. my eBay day. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into your eBay days soon enough. Um, but yeah, for, for the listeners, this is the OG right here. Um, Ken Chin, he's the man. So let's start with your product journey, right? How did you end up in product management? Because I believe that you didn't start off your career in product management, right? No. Yeah. Um, my, my journey into product was a complete accident. Uh, probably like most people. Yeah. Um, but I actually started off my career in um, in software engineering, right? So I did computer science at university. So yeah, I started off life actually writing code. Um, I'm going to sh show you how old I am. <laughs> I, I used to I used to write code for IBM mainframe computers back in the, back in the day, right? So, seriously, yeah. seriously, because yeah, I actually, yeah, so yeah. my first job in the bank. Um, mm -hmm. I actually did mainframe administration using RecF on the the ZOS. Uh, yeah, I was using a IBM MVS system. Uh, this archaic, you know, language. Was it the like was it was it called the OS three ninety or was it something like that? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, please continue. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I sort of split my career into my pre eBay days and my post eBay career. Um, up until eBay, you know, I was, you know, working in Singapore as a software developer for a couple of years, went back to Perth, Australia. Um, uh, I went into an Apple store, tried to buy a Mac and they gave me a job instead. So I worked for, <laughs> for Apple for a couple of years as, as a, an account manager. I finally decided I was going to start my own uh, digital media agency not because I wanted to start a business, but because I love digital media 
Uh, this is in the mid '90s. You know, stuff was still basically on CD-ROM at the time, um, but there were no other companies that were, you know, willing to employ me. They just didn't exist, so I had to start my own. Okay. Um, so that was in the mid '90s, and then in 2000, I realized that hey, this thing called the internet is absolutely taking off, and Perth, Australia, is not the best place to be uh, in terms of you know the the center of the world for for the internet. So uh, at that point, I decided to move to Sydney, Australia. And uh, I worked for a large uh, travel company for five years, setting up all of their e-commerce and intranets, internal systems, and all of their, you know, uh, travel booking systems. Um, so I was there in Sydney for five years, and then uh, and then that's where I I joined eBay. Joined eBay for a couple of years in the Sydney office. Uh, actually, initially not as a product manager. I was actually in a business management role uh, first. I was a category manager, then marketing manager, then motors category manager. Um, and then, uh, and then that's when I thought, Hey, you know, there's a, an opportunity to become a product manager. Um, I had never heard of the role of product management before. Right. So it was a, it was a great opportunity for me and it brought together all of my technical skills, all of the kind of business management skills, uh, as well as, you know, just being in the, in the digital space. So it was, it was a great opportunity for me and, I've loved it ever since. So um, did you apply for the role or were you sort of offered the role? Were you pushed into the role uh, when you switched uh, in eBay? Yeah. So um, so I was looking around and then I was talking to a couple of uh, uh, employment and recruitment agencies. And then one of them just suggested, hey, have you heard of this company called eBay? Right. Uh, they had just launched in Australia about a year and year and a half you know, before. Uh, they were looking to grow the team. Um, so I jumped at the opportunity. Right? Right. It, eBay was the first company that I joined where people knew more than I did. You know, Up until that point, it was in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Okay. Right? But at eBay, I, I met people who really knew their shit. Okay. And I believe that you, you, you were in the Sydney office. Then after that, you went to the, to the UK office. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I had the opportunity to move to the London office. Uh, they needed some product managers there. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if you go up in Perth, Australia, and somebody offers you the opportunity to move to London, <laughs> you don't say no to that. You would regret it for the rest of your life. So you make you make Perth sound. So, I moved over. Yeah, you make Perth sound so bad. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are two types of people from Perth, right? There are the people who live there and never leave, and the other people, are people like me, they get out as soon as they can and they never come back. <laughs> Oh boy! All right. Um, if, don't throw any hate at me. You know, I'm just a messenger, so <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you, yeah. But if you have any experiences in Perth, especially in product management and in tech, um, yeah, do put your comments as well, because I think uh, or, or email me or something like that. I'll be really, really keen to to see whether anyone has had an experience that's different from Ken. Um, but all right, let, let's let's fast forward a little bit. So you came to Asia in uh, 2017, is that right? Yeah, early 2017, yeah. Yeah, and you took up a job in Malaysia uh, with uh, Seek Asia. That's right. So um, I was recruited in as the chief product officer for Seek Asia. Um, So if you don't know much about Seek Asia, it's an employment marketplace. So it's a two-sided marketplace. Um, You'll find that many 
two-sided marketplaces have similar dynamics. So it's actually, you know, not too different from eBay. Uh, instead of buyers and sellers, you've got, you know, candidates and hirers. hirers. Um, and then it's, it's based in KL. Uh, well, my, my role was based in KL, but actually we have quite a large development center in Hong Kong and Shenzhen as well. Um, and then the company itself operates across you know, seven markets throughout um, Southeast Asia and Hong Kong as well. Okay. So um, for the Malaysian listeners, right, Seek Asia, I believe, was previously known as uh, Job Street. And then Correct. it got bought over by the Seek Group, which is, I think, the number one um, a recruitment um, platform in is it the world or is it just in... No, in, in Australia. In Australia. Uh, it's certainly okay. one of the largest in the world uh, in terms of market capitalization. Yeah. Um, but there's actually two companies that came together to form Seek Asia. So one of them is jobstreet.com, which was based out of out of KL. Um, and the other one is uh, JobsDB, which is actually based in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay. And right. uh, prior to the, the merger of those two companies, they were fierce competitors you know, they, they hated each other. <laughs> so bringing these two companies together to become one was, you know, quite a, quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so let's, let's start um, a little bit um, of when you started, right? So why did you decide to join Seek Asia? Because you had already by that time, you know, in your own words, you'd left the boringness of Perth. You've gone to the bright lights of UK. You even spent time in the Silicon Valley. Why would you come to a small country like Malaysia where, you know, tech isn't exactly, you know, the most vibrant? Yeah, so a, a lot of planets aligned uh, for this role, right? So uh, so my parents are Malaysian. That's a start, right? Um, so from, a, you know, knowing the country, knowing the culture, having friends and family around, you know, that, that was really easy for me. Um, love the food. Booyah. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> The, the second thing, the, the role itself was really interesting, right? So I'd never been at the C-suite before. So the chief product officer role was really interesting for me. I really wanted to own the product vision and the product strategy, but I also wanted to own uh, the way that product was, was run and operated, right? So I had a great partner um, in terms of the CTO, um, Dan. He, um, he and I look at the same uh, look at things the same way in terms of how we run teams and how we how we want to run products. So that and, was a, and he's Australian too, right? So that helps, right? He's also Australian as well. Yep, uh, but he's been in. He's more Malaysian than I am. Uh, he's been <laughs> in Malaysia for a long time. That is true. Um, so Dan Dan was a, a great partner to have in in that company. Mm-hmm. Um, it was regional. You know, it wasn't a single country market. It was you know across seven markets in Asia. So that was interesting. Um, and because of this merger of the, the two competitive companies together, there was a lot of transformation that was required. So I'd been part of uh, transformations before, and I've been part of the leadership team um, in different organizations when a transformation has happened. I've consulted to it when I was at BCG as well. Um, and, um, and I think I really just wanted to sort of lead a transformation and, and have that experience of doing it the right way and, and, and doing it well. Okay. So in that sense, what was the state of the Seek Asia product team? Um, if you could sort of give a summary and also the follow-up question to that would be, what were your first decisions as the chief product officer of Seek Asia? Yeah. So, um, so the, the state that I found it was, you know, it was, it was still in that post-merger state, right? So the teams had come together, 
but they were still working on separate platforms, right? Because there was still the JobStreet platform and the JobsDB platform. So the teams were still, um, although they were part of a single structure, they were essentially working on their own platforms, right? Um, and there was still a lot of uh, post-merger work that needed to be done in terms of aligning things, um, you know, pay, performance management, a whole bunch of sort of operational processes. Um, and then the, the biggest challenge, I think, was that, you know, different markets were under pressure. Uh, com the competitive pressure had increased. Um, different markets were at different stages of maturity. Um, and then we had two legacy platforms to deal with, right? So there was the Job Street platform and the JobsDB platform. Both had been around for, you know, around 20 years uh, when I joined. So there was a lot of legacy technology. And um, the, the rate of innovation and the rate of um, product delivery had suffered because um, a, a lot of technical debt had been allowed to accumulate. So, so what, what did you do then? What were your first few decisions? Like, what did you have to do? So you were talking about like salaries that you were looking at and things like that. But mm -hmm. from, a, from a practice, a product practice standpoint, from a product team perspective of now having, you know, uh, JobsDB and JobSuite together under one entity, what did you have to do as the CPO to sort of, you know, get the wheels moving? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing that I looked at was the team, right? Um, you have to do a fairly harsh assessment of the team. Um, and I think because Asia is a less mature market, just in terms of, of technology, um, the expectations of people are a little bit lower, right? And, and so raising the expectations uh, of performance and what, um, what skills they need to bring to the job you know, how they do things, the way they think about problems and the way they, you know, uh, look at innovation, you know, all the bar had to be raised in terms of, um, of the teams. So, um, so that was, you know, that was a difficult process. You know, um, there were some great people um, uh, in the organization already. Uh, and then there were some other people who, you know, after you assess them for a while, you think, you know, are they going to be able to achieve the the level of um, of competency and performance that you 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 would expect them for that level of role, right? Um, so working with the team, coaching them, training them, having to manage uh, some people out, and then hiring new people in was a big part of my role in the first year. Um, but we also did quite a large restructure of the um, of the product delivery uh, team as well. So the PD organization. You know, it was roughly 200 people, including all of the engineers, PMs, designers, data, data people. Um, so uh, we, we structured a, um, a transformation program uh, that took over, you know, just over uh, a year uh, to, to roll out. And we essentially recruited people um, from the organization into a new team structure where each team had a very well-defined domain um, within the, the the product, so that they could focus and get really deep in terms of the the metrics, the performance, understanding customers' needs in that part of the the product. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was quite a large organizational transformation that happened as well. 
Okay. And and from a, from the product itself, uh, not the team, but from the product or the platform itself, what was the the, the, the main remit um, when you first joined? Um, was it to to build new features? Was it to re-platform? What was, what was that remit like? Um, the remit was a negotiation, right? So, um, so I worked with the CEO, Suresh, you know, we, we had a, a reasonably well-defined, you know, uh, prioritization process. Um, so in the same way that an agile team would have uh, a prioritization and, and, and of, a, of a backlog, we had a very similar sort of process at the enterprise level where we had an enterprise backlog and we l- would look at all of the, the key strategic pr- um, uh, projects and um, and and uh, initiatives that needed to to, to to go ahead, and we would discuss and debate. You know, should we be doing this now? Should we be doing it later? What is the relative priority of each of these things at a at a high level? Mm-hmm. Um, and we would also include things like you know um, platform stability in in there as well. So uh, so there were a number of teams that were much more focused on the enterprise backlog. But then we also had a set of teams that were really there just to work on the existing product, like just making sure that the product actually worked well, that it was performant, um, and then starting to improve the uh, the existing product as well. So there was a bit of a balance between those two. Okay, and how how many how many product managers did you have? Um, yeah, slash product owners. I'm not sure what the structure was like there, but how many product people did you have under you? Yeah, so so I had a few different teams reporting into me. I had um, the uh, product managers uh, uh, reporting into me. I also had responsibility for the design team, uh, as well as the analytics team when I first joined as well. Um, later on, we actually moved the analytics team into its own group uh, under a new leader yeah. uh, because we wanted to have a, a greater focus on uh, both data analytics and data science and data engineering. So we, mm-hmm. we pulled all of those people together. Uh, to make that work. So I was left with uh, product management and design, and they were about you know, 15 to 17 people each in each of those two teams. Um, yeah, so that's the, the size of the, the team that was reporting up to me. Okay, fantastic. So um, I want to go back a little bit to something that you mentioned, right? Because uh, you were saying that, you know, there was this uh, relatively, uh, I, I, I can't remember the word they used, I think it was mature a prioritization process um, and this is an interesting question that I think would be good for the listeners to understand as well. Did you use the same kind of prioritization techniques that you learn in product management to take it over into, you know, your management or your board meetings as well? What did you use in in terms of prioritization? Yeah, well, look, it's actually a very similar process, right? Um, maybe the level of documentation uh, is a little bit higher because you need to, you know, present it convincingly. Uh, as to you know what what are each of these uh, projects uh, or or um, strategic initiatives, and um, and then different people would be contributing things to that backlog as well. So you know it's it's not just my backlog. I'm I'm responsible for prioritizing it and mm-hmm. uh, and ensuring that we have agreement across the leadership team yeah. about that prioritization. Mm-hmm. But you know the, you would we would have um, uh, initiatives from the the strategy team or sales and ops. Um, contributing uh, projects to, to that list as well, right? So it might be a pricing project. It might be a, um, a new set of features for a new set of customers. Um, yeah, it, it could be um, something like, um, you know, replacing a, a legacy experience. Uh, in, in fact, that was, you know, one of our key focus areas uh, over time was 
you know, uh, trying to look at how do we build a new customer experience for the candidate side of the marketplace? Mm-hmm. Um, because those experiences had, you know, become a bit, you know, stale uh, over time. Um, old technology stacks, you know, fairly limited sort of UX. So how do you provide a, a great new experience um, in, um, in each of our markets, mm-hmm. starting with our most competitive market in Hong Kong? Yeah. Um, and then sort of moving on from there. So, so yeah, so it's very similar prioritization to, uh, to anyone in a, in a normal agile team. Okay. And when, as, as a sort of organization, um, were you guys using, what were you using, OKRs, KPIs, or was it something else to, to sort of measure the effectiveness of, a, of the product tech or the product delivery team? Yeah, so so we have um, we have key metrics uh, at a high level for the business, but then we also have key metrics at the team level for for each team and each domain. Uh, and then on top of that, we have OKRs. So we use OKRs as a way to provide guidance and direction to the teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be quite a painful process to actually d- define what OKRs are, but I think once you've got them defined, then the team has incredible clarity on what exactly they need to do right mm-hmm. um and it and it's not about um activities you know okrs need to be written about objectives you know what is yes. the customer objective that we're, we're trying to achieve and how do we measure that effectively um yeah so so once you've defined okrs then it becomes much easier to give that team the autonomy that it that it wants in order to achieve uh the the business objectives Okay, so here's the question that is actually uh, uh, I've read it like multiple times, and a lot of people are asking it. And as usual, I love to poke poke holes and sort of try to understand in real life how this works, right? So OKRs are supposed to be aspirational, and um, in that sense, always just a little bit out of reach to stretch yourself. And then the other ideal about OKR is that you're not supposed to measure the achievements of the teams using OKR. So it's not supposed to be used as the way to actually uh, do your um, uh, performance reviews. Yeah. So what's your experience with how did you do that? (sighs) It's a little bit mixed. I have to have to be honest. Right. Um, So in theory, like it shouldn't be used for performance reviews and yes, they should be aspirational. I think we got the aspirational bit, right. You know, they were always, you know, stretch goals, you know, quite ambitious. Um, But we didn't, I didn't penalize people for not achieving 100%, right? You only expect them to achieve, you know, 60, 70%. Yeah, as it should be, right? Right. Um, so that's the expectation of, you know, how they should achieve OKRs. It's hard to not factor that in into performance reviews, yes. right? Uh, because so much of how you measure people uh, is about also not only what they achieve, but how they do it. So on the what they achieve, it's hard, you know, you, you, you can write separate goals for that, but they end up being very similar to, to OKRs, right? Um, and then on the behavior side, you know, how they get things done, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a separate conversation. That's, that's more about culture and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so would it be fair to say that, um, you know, in, in the implementation of, or, or rather in your journey of using OKRs within um, your organization, were you able to achieve that ideal of like totally separating it? 
No, I, I would say not. No. Um, yeah, it, I mean, we, we tried to keep it separate. Um, you know, so, so we tried to follow the, the principles of keeping it separate. Yeah. But often when you're talking about, you know, so what did you achieve? People would talk about their OKRs. Right, because that is that is what they are focused on in terms of of, of achievement. So, uh, you know, in theory it sounds great, but in practice it was, it was very difficult to separate out those okay. two. Okay, but okay. So then let's flip to the other side of OKRs. Then OKRs are supposed to help organizations, you know, all sort of align together with where they're going. Do you feel that OKRs helped you to to do that um, as an organization? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a very good um, uh, attribute of OKRs. Is mm-hmm. that once they're written, you you can get good alignment across teams, but also good alignment and agreement with the leadership team as well, yeah. right? Because OKRs would normally be written on a quarterly basis, and we would review them not only with the team but also with the, the leadership team as well. So that means you've got good. Um, a, a good alignment across what people are expecting teams to achieve. Uh, it also brings complexity in terms of negotiating those OKRs in the first place um, because you do need to get that alignment. But I think it's a forcing mechanism for, for organizational alignment. That, that's why they're so good, right? It forces that, that conversation to happen. All right, fantastic. All right, so let, let's let's close the chapter on OKR. Um, I want to sort of move on to the other aspects of of your your time with uh, with Seek. So one of the things as well, given that you know this show focuses on products in Southeast Asia, obviously, what did you find uh, about, or rather, what was your experience with dealing um, or, or doing product management in Asia? Hmm. Well, it it is different, right? Um, a lot of the principles are the same, um, but the execution of them has has to change, right? Because um, it's all situational. It's all based on the uh, the circumstances of the maturity of the the teams and the individuals that are that are in your teams, um, the the um, the competitive situation that you're in, the pressure that you're under in order to achieve things, and then just the the dynamics of the um, the product delivery organization. Um, with other parts of the business, uh, with marketing, with, you know, operations. You know, there are different dynamics within the business as well and different levels of maturity within different parts of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so working in Asia, I did find a, a couple of things. Um, there does tend to be a, some cultural traits which are quite different. Um, and I actually spoke about this at, at one of my conference presentations uh, a couple of years ago. This would be um, MTP, right? MTP. Yeah, Mind the Products. Uh, the, uh, the first one uh, here in, in Asia was, was in Singapore a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, so, some of the things that I mentioned there is that you, you do tend to see um, some cultural, cultural traits uh, in Asia, which are quite different to what you would find in in the West, right? In you know Australia or or Europe or the US, uh, and one of them is this sort of cultural trait of conflict avoidance, right? Um, you, you generally find that people don't. I'm not sure exactly why it, it's it's potentially a, a cultural thing, but it's also perhaps. Um, just not having good practice at it, but people tend not to speak up, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I was doing a, uh, a, a large team meeting 
um, in London, for example, um, at the, at the end of the of, of the the meeting, there would be lots of questions. Everybody would be asking questions, trying to find clarity about you know what we just discussed. Um, in Asia, you might get a few questions, uh, usually from the same people, and then it becomes like dead silence. Right? Yes, so that, 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 that inevitable awkward silence, right? Yeah. Any questions? Yeah, exactly. And then you have to go, you know, start doing things like, okay, I'm going to look for volunteers or something like that just to get people's yeah. creative juices flowing. Exactly. Um, but, you know, if, if you've got a question in your head but you don't ask it, you know, that's a wasted opportunity because probably half the room has exactly the same question, right? So um, I, I generally find um, that uh, the people who are a little bit more, you know, confident, um, they're not afraid to speak out. Um, they, they tend to take leadership roles because they do find clarity. They do go seeking clarity so that when they do achieve things, you know, it's exactly what, what you're looking for. Okay. Yeah. So, sorry, then, then the follow-up question to that is, so given that this sort of trait seems to be more prevalent in Asia than, let's say, you know, in, in, more, in other Western countries, for example, what mm-hmm. would then be your advice for someone who, let's say, would say, you know, I'm a more introverted um, product manager or I'm the quieter sort in that sense? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to use the labels or generalize. But yeah, for, for those kinds of product managers, what would your advice be? Yeah, look, there's, there's a few things that, I, um, that I've found quite good at uh, overcoming some of those inhibitions, right? Um, to... to to set some context, though, I am actually an introvert. You know, if I do my, you know, Myers-Briggs scores, I'm highly introverted. Um, but I've trained myself to be extrovert. And I have a battery that lasts about uh, somewhere between 13 and 16 hours, right, where I can, I can be an extrovert, I can talk to people, um, and then I curl up into a little ball and I don't want to talk to anyone, <laughs> <laughs> and and if you're in that same sort of place, like you're, you're a little bit shy, a bit introverted, then you just need to get out there and actually practice, you know, practice in a safe environment. Um, it could be um, within the work environment itself. So you could be doing um, lunch bag, you know, learning sessions, you know, just with your team or with a few teams where you're presenting something. You know, you're, you're, you're telling them about the latest you know, engineering framework or the latest design framework or whatever it might be. Um, you could do it outside of the workplace as well. So one thing that I've um, advised people to do is go and sing karaoke. Very it's a great way of building confidence, right? So in terms of, you know, gearing up to being the focal point of, you know, of, you know some, some group of people, um, and having some confidence to actually perform, karaoke is actually not a bad way to do that. You're in a friendly environment. It's kind of fun. No one's really serious. There's a lot of alcohol. Um, you know, it's actually quite a safe way of, you know, getting up and presenting and, and performing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So uh, I was also mentoring a, a, another PM uh, based in Hong Kong. Uh, instead of karaoke, she did poetry recital, Right. Um, which was also another great way. Or you could do a more traditional thing, like um, you know some of those uh, groups where they actually help you uh, present. I forgot what it's called now. Um, Spoken word. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. There's there's a few groups like that. I, 
can't remember. Okay. <laughs> okay. Say, yeah. yeah, very interesting. So for, for those of you, because um, and the reason why I brought this up was because um, people have asked these questions before. Like, does this mean that if you are less vocal, you are quieter, that means there is no future for you as a product leader? Um, and I think you've um, answered that very well. So that's fantastic. Um, but so m moving along that line, right? So when you hire, especially um, in Asia, when you hire, um, what, what are you looking for um, in terms of, you know, let's say a product leader, let's talk about product leaders, I think, um, because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in terms of being junior, I think as long as you show potential, that's usually a, a great way to mm. get in. But let's talk yeah. about what you look for in product leaders, especially when, when you were in Asia. Yeah, so um, so when you when I'm thinking about product leaders, you know, I am thinking about how well they're going to perform under pressure because you know the more senior you get as a product manager uh, and as you move into leadership roles, your stakeholders just become bigger and meaner, right? They don't go away; <laughs> they just they just keep getting bigger, right? Um, so uh, so you have to be able to deal with those sorts of situations. So. Communication is absolutely necessary. Um, influence is actually a really big part of being a product manager, uh, a senior product manager and, and a product leader as well, right? So can you influence people? Um, can you convince them of a certain path? Can you negotiate that path? Um, do you have a bit of a strategic mind as well? So can you see the broader picture and, and from a bigger perspective, right? Um, so in general, in this very broad generalization, um, as you become more senior as a product uh, leader, the aperture that you see starts to open up. You know, when you're a junior product manager, it might be just a few user stories. Then as a product manager, you, it becomes your team. Maybe it then extends to a whole domain and then the whole product. And then you move to the whole company. And then you might move to your aperture being the entire marketplace, right? You need to be aware of all of the new competitors that are coming uh, to, to try and eat your lunch, you know, different business models. And that's where strategy starts to play a, a bigger role as well. So, so there's the, the managing other people and, and stakeholders part. Um, there's a lot of behaviors in there that I look for. Um, the ability to resolve conflicts effectively, um, ability to communicate, influence, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Then there's, on top of all of the, the standard product management uh, capabilities and, and competencies you would expect, you know, there's that broadening of the aperture. Can you think a bit more strategically about, you know, why we're doing this? Um, what is the value proposition that we're trying to, to, uh, to deliver to customers? Mm -hmm. Who are the customers? Is this the right marketplace that we're in? Yeah, so, so those elements start to become much more important. I think there's a third one as well, which is around people management, right? So as you become more senior in general, um, you, you may start to actually uh, have people reporting into you as well. Yes. So can you also be a great people manager? Mm -hmm. um, and from, from that perspective, there's a great book, uh, which is Radical Candor, that I, I really suggest people read. Um, it brings together a lot of things and a lot of practices um, that I think are really good, um, but it puts them all into one really nice uh, framework, which is uh, which is a, a great achievement um, uh, by by Kim Scott. 
So yeah, so that that's another key aspect of, of what I look for in a product leader as well. Okay. And now on the flip side, so if let's say I'm a product manager who's trying to, you know, spread my wings and fly, I feel like I'm ready for a product leadership role, but my current circumstance does not allow it or you know, I don't have the opportunity to do it because it, it sounds a lot like, you know, as you go up the ladder, right, you, you tend to become more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There seems to be like, a high importance on the soft skills. There's a, a, a more importance of learning how to adapt and how to speak, how to convey. So how would you then advise, let's say someone like me, if I'm saying that, you know, hey, I want to I wanna expand my scope and, and really get into that space of product leadership. What should I do? Yeah, so so this is something that we did at, at Seek Asia as well, is that as, as a product leader, I want to develop the leaders in my team as well. Yes. Like, it's super important because I, I don't want to be doing all that work. Right? <laughs> I want to I grow the people in my team so that they can do a, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So I would start to invite them in to key leadership meetings, right? So they might not attend, you know, every, uh, permanently as a, as a permanent uh, part of, of, of that meeting. But you would invite them in to present a particular topic, right, um, to the rest of the leadership team. And that's a great way of getting them sort of practicing some of those skills about presenting a particular uh, initiative or a, a new set of key features that we've delivered um, and exposing them to the rest of the leadership team as well. Um, so that's something that you might try and talk to you about, uh, talk to your boss about, right? So if you've got a, a product leader, uh, who is attending these types of meetings, you know, have a conversation with them about maybe being invited into some of those meetings just to present, you know, the very specific pieces of work that, that the team is doing. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Please carry on. Yeah, and, and then the, the other one is as you become a product leader, um, you have to think about not only the product management skills, but you need to become a student of leadership itself right so i would really advise people to actually start reading um different books about leadership um uh, so there's there's a few you know ted talks youtube videos and then there's a whole lot of uh, podcasts books um and and i, I use audible quite a lot right so I, I i listen to a lot of these sort of books uh using audible uh because that means i can be doing two things at the same time essentially um, so there's there's lots of great leadership and management books out there. Become a student of leadership. Right? That's that's my other piece of advice. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, all right, so I'm going to move on to to something else. Um, I know that you know. Actually, I really wanted to you know chew on this with Ken a lot more, but but I think I want to cover another aspect of what he has done, which I think is very interesting. So I also note that you are actually quite well-versed with product design as well. So uh, I've seen your talks on in LTP about product design. I've spoken to you personally about, you know, product management and product design. And you seem to, to have a, a expertise in it in that sense. And that's not something that all product, product management leaders would have. And also in Seek Asia, you were taking the product design role and product management role. What mm -hmm. would you say would be the key differences between product design and product manager? Just, just to you know, put it out there to start that conversation. Um, the really only the difference is time, right? Your ability to focus on one thing at a time. So product management and design are almost the same. 
right? There's very, very little difference about the way that we, we are thinking about the customer and solving a customer problem with a, with a great value proposition. And then from value proposition, you take that to, you know, what are the options in terms of, of solutions? Um, so product managers and designers are thinking exactly about the same things, but product managers just have to be much broader. You know, we're not only thinking about the best solution, we're also thinking about, um, you know, other aspects of product operations, the engineering, the, the monetization model, you know, metrics, all of these uh, different aspects, and then pulling all of that together. Whereas the designer has a, a, a narrower focus, they can just focus on, is this a great product, right? So there's, there's really not that much difference. Product management is design and design is product management, right? Mm. It's just that um, you have the opportunity to spend more time thinking about it as a designer mm -hmm. um, than, than you do as a, as a product manager. Okay. Um, yeah. And so then the next question would be, you know, once upon a time, getting C-level product people was um, new, right? Like CPOs mm -hmm. are a, a relatively new um, concept in that sense. And then mm -hmm. after that, now what we're seeing is you, you have CDOs as well, like chief design officers or chief, um, I think, experience officers, they call it now. Mm -hmm. So how, how does that work? Because if, let's say, design and product management are essentially sort of quite the same, but now they're both at the, the, the table. Uh, yeah, how does that work? And, and this is more curious because, again, within, within the, the companies that I've seen, it's not that common. But I would believe that this is going to be, you know, the pun intended, the new normal as well. That you're going to have chief mm -hmm. product officers and chief design officers or chief experience officers as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a good trend, but I think it depends on the culture of the company and the level of maturity of that company as well, right? So if you're a startup, for example, um, and you maybe you're still looking for product market fit, maybe, um, maybe you're starting to, you know, you're in the early stages of scaling, your focus is still very much on the product and the customer, right? Um, because you're just trying to grow, right? Super important. And, and in, in early, you know, early stage companies, um, you might have several executives with that focus. So it's totally fine to have a CPO and a chief design officer or, or a, a chief customer experience officer, right? Um, I think when you're a large successful organization, your, your, your focus tends to be a bit broader because you've got to take in, um, you know, a lot more sort of, um, uh, other aspects of the the business, like um, like scale, you know, customer service operations, all those other aspects of it as well. Um, and there's you know there's there's a, there's a limit to how big your executive team can be, right? Before it becomes just unmanageable, yeah. right? So uh, I think when you've got large, complex organizations with multiple business units and you know a, a lot more complexity, it's hard to have a lot of um, uh, specialist um, uh, executives on on that team, um, and and so you know just from a pragmatic purpose, I, I think it's it's less common with very large organisations, uh, but I do see, you know, see it becoming much more common with smaller organisations or smaller small to medium organisations. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I would have thought that it would be more common in bigger organisations, given that they would have more complexities around the reporting matrix, you know, and and things like that. But you, you're thinking. 
Yeah, um, I, I am starting to see it happen a little bit more often in large organizations, but maybe not at the CXO level, right? Okay. Uh, you might have a VP or a very senior executive, but uh, maybe not a chief product officer and a chief design officer or a CXO. Uh, it, it does happen, right? Um, I, I do see larger organizations starting to become much more customer focused and, and therefore you will start to see more of these types of, of positions becoming available. Mm -hmm. All right. So, and then one last question on this topic. So if let's say uh, someone who started out in design, so it's very common to see a product manager sort of go up the ranks to hit the product management function, which includes design. But I'm mm -hmm. also seeing uh, the other trend where there are product designers who go up the ranks and then become product leads or heads of products, which include product management as well. Um, so in your, in your opinion, how, what must that person do if, let's say, they're coming from the other side of, of the coin to come up and lead the, the, the product team or the product practice? Mm. Yeah, so a really interesting question. Um, let me think about that. I, I think uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, opening up that that uh, perspective, right, and broadening your your aperture. Um, I, I think that would be necessary as a designer as well, right? So, design you do have the benefit of being able to focus very sharply on the customer experience and making the product the best it can be. Um, and I think if you are going to be you know, leading a product management team as well as a, as a senior executive, then you do need to understand that broader perspective about, you know, what, what is the key metrics of the business, um, understanding the data, um, understanding, you know, the, the interaction between product and you know, customer support or sales or other parts of the business. Yeah, so just taking on that broader perspective, I think would be absolutely necessary. But I've seen very effective design leaders becoming product leaders mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, right? I, I have as well. And it's just that I've, I've read about, you know, some people write about how, you know, it's so different and it'll be good to see because like I said, you're one of the leaders who, who has a seeming passion for both product management and product design. So obviously want to sort of pick your brains on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I love design so much as well is that it, it helps it gives you a whole set of tools to talk about the customer and what we're trying to achieve on, on behalf of the customer. Like what is the customer problem we're trying to solve? So frameworks like uh, human-centered design, you know, design thinking, uh, mm -hmm. jobs to be done, they're all great ways actually to talk about product strategy, yeah. um, which is something that, you know, you're responsible for as a, as a product leader. So yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great set of tools for talking about those topics as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So now let's from there move on to another aspect. So they say, well, when I say they, I'm talking about a lot of analysts uh, and, and basically people in the industry um, who say that, you know, Southeast Asia is probably going to be the next most exciting place for tech companies and startups, right? And so obviously... Um, as, as I've seen, and I think you've noticed, well, in fact, I think you've hired some of them as well, uh, people from other countries coming to Southeast Asia to, to apply their trade with, within the product practice. So if, if let's say I am not from Southeast Asia, I want to find a job in Southeast Asia, experience that boom, what should I know beforehand? Like what would be, yeah, what would your advice be? Yeah, so working in Southeast Asia is, um, 
is a really interesting environment, right? So, um, so first of all, you've got a lot of diversity in the region, right? And because of that, you've got quite a lot of complexity. You've got markets like Indonesia, which are huge and have incredible growth potential, um, but tends to be a little bit behind, right? Uh, behind markets like Singapore and Hong Kong, for example. Um, those are much, uh, much smaller but wealthier markets, yep. um, and they're, they're more mature. And then you've got everything in between. You've got, you know, Philippines, uh, Thailand, um, Vietnam, and, and Malaysia, right? So, um, so it, it's quite a diverse range of markets that you're working with, and that level of complexity adds um, a lot of pain, but also a lot of fun, right? It's, it's quite challenging working across different markets like that. Um, the, there's also a lot of cultural diversity. Um, so that's something that I encourage a lot in my teams. I, I like to hire teams that are very, very culturally diverse. And the reason why I do that is because I don't want any single country culture to dominate the behavior of the team, right? So for example, um, if you have a team full of Germans, they're going to operate in a very German way, right? If you have a team full of Italians, they're going to operate in a very Italian way. Similarly, if you have a team full of, you know, Hong Kongers, they're going to operate in a very, you know, certain way, uh, dictated by their, um, their country cultures. Mm -hmm. If you've got a team of all sorts of people, you know, we had, uh, you know, we had people from Europe, we had people from Asia, Australia, uh, in, in my team, you know, we had people from all over the world. Um, if you've got that level of diversity, there's no one single country culture that dominates. And that gives you as a, as a, as a leader, the opportunity to create your own culture, right, uh, within that team. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, in terms of, you know, advice I'd give to people coming to Asia, you are going to have to be flexible. You know, things are going to be different. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of goes without saying. You are going to have to navigate some of these cultural traits of, of you know, avoiding conflict, for example. Um, how, do you, how do you encourage that in your teams, um, but do it in a sensitive way that doesn't, you know, piss people off, basically? Um, so, yeah, so you're going to have to be adaptable in terms of your, your behaviors. But I think one of the things that I look for in bringing a team together is that I want people who can bring some of that culture from other countries and other organizations into my team, uh, because I, I find that, you know, super important as well. Okay. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, that's great advice because that's one of the things that does come up. So like recently I was in a, in a panel that was talking about uh, product management in Silicon Valley and Southeast Asia. And that was one of the questions, right? So if let's say they want to come, some product managers want to come over to Southeast Asia, what should they be prepared for? So I think that that's really great advice. Now, we're going to go into some of the, 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 the tougher tougher topics before we, we close. Uh, probably got another <laughs> <Okay>. 10 minutes. <laughs> um, so you, you left Seek, right? Um, and, and I'm yeah. very curious, you know, why, why did you leave Seek? Yeah, the, the, there's, there's a couple of reasons, right? So, um, so one was that the, the plan was that I would move to Malaysia, my wife would come over, uh, and then she would also settle down in, in KL, find a job, and you know, would spend a bit more time in Asia. Um, 
that kind of happened. She came over, she stayed here for six months, but she didn't really like any of the companies um, that, uh, that she was interviewing with. Uh, so she's in digital marketing, right? Um, she's in B2B um, uh, lead generation and, and, and content marketing. Um, and again, the, just the, the level of maturity uh, for digital companies in Southeast Asia is, is lower than what you would find in, in Europe or, or the US. And therefore, you know, she was just a little bit, you know, unimpressed with the, the role descriptions and the level of responsibility um, that, that she could find in Malaysia. And so she, she decided, you know, she really needed to pursue her career. Uh, and in order to do that, she would move back to London. Um, yeah, so that kind of set the clock ticking for me to, <laughs> to leave and, and to, to go back to London to, to join my family as well. So that was that was one of the key reasons. Uh, I think the other one was that, um, you know, I had achieved a lot of things that I wanted to achieve at Seek Asia, and it was going through a, 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 its, its own next phase of transformation as well. Um, you know, the Seek Asia business and the Seek uh, ANZ business um, were also starting to come together. Uh, so... So I, you know, I participated as, as as part of that transformation, but I knew that also I um, I wanted to be back in a role where I had full, you know, full control over the the product vision and the product strategy again as well, rather than be you know just part of a a large team of executives. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that that I wanted to ask you earlier, but now would be actually a, a better time to ask it, right? Was when you stepped into this sort of like CPO role at a C level, it's a very senior level, right? Um, what were the biggest things that you found different about, you know, being, let's say a product leader at a, let's say, uh, I don't know, maybe director level um, versus at being a C level? Yeah, there's uh there are a few differences. So one is that everyone's looking at you to lead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, I, I think one of the interesting definitions of a leader is somebody that people are willing to follow, right? So you, you've got to earn the trust of an, an entire organization um, to be able to, to lead that organization and to influence that organization. So um, I certainly found myself doing a lot more stakeholder management with different parts of the business that I had no idea how they operate, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so, so that's, that's a challenge. Uh, I think, you need, you need, again, you need to broaden your, your perspective and, and widen, um, widen that, uh, that aperture. Uh, in order to understand other parts of the business. Um, I think you're also exposed to a lot more um, uh, corporate and business level strategy as well. So that, again, may be something that you're uh, less familiar with. Um, fortunately, I had done some of that, you know, when I was at, um, at BCG uh, and uh, in other organizations. Uh, so it was, wasn't totally unfamiliar to me, but again, it's different when you're kind of, in it and in, in the thick of it, right? Um, what else is different at sea level? What about what about you know how much um, how much are you actually touching pr- the product itself, right? Because uh-huh. from all accounts, it sounds like you're pretty much hands off, and your sole role is now really just to build the team, you know, and and you know yeah. manage upwards. 
Yeah, that that does change quite a lot, right? But but it's it's not just at sea level. I think that already starts to happen when you're at head of and director level, right? Um, you become more remote from the the the, the actual product itself, yeah. uh, in terms of actually getting stuff built, mm-hmm. um, and you have to do that through your your teams and, right. and through your direct reports. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about it. Um, uh, as your product is the product delivery organization, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So, yes, you're still responsible for the product vision and strategy, but you can't be directly involved in, you know, you know prioritizing prioritizing user stories anymore. You have to do that <laughs> at the next level up, right? Yeah. You're prioritizing, you know, uh, programs that might last three months up to 12 months perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Um, and you're... You're giving your teams enough air, air cover to, for them to be able to effectively do their jobs, right? So you're, you're shielding them from a lot of the the conversations and flip-flopping of priorities um, so that they can actually just focus and get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that's a very impart, important part of being a, a product leader as well. Right. Very, very nice. All right. So, um, and... What are your next steps then? Because, yeah, you're now back in the UK, you know, you're now enjoying the nice birds and no airplanes at the Heathrow Airport. Beautiful spring weather. <laughs> um, so so the, the plan was, so, so, I, um, so I left Seek Asia in October uh, last year, uh, 2019. Um, so my plan was to take six months off as a career break and then come back to London and... Um, and work on a startup or, or to find a job, right? Those, those were my two options. Uh, and then COVID-19 hit, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's thrown some of my plans into turmoil a bit. I still have those two same options, mm-hmm. um, but the idea that I had for a startup needs to pivot a little bit in order to, to, um, to be successful in, in this new sort of uh, environment. Um, and also, you know, looking for my next opportunity here in London uh, is taking a little bit longer than I expected as well, obviously, because, you know, people are slowing down on hiring and they're, you know, really looking at, at saving uh, their, their cash reserves so that they yeah. can just survive. And know, I think also for. because partly because of the seniority as well, the, the jobs are lesser to begin with. So mm. obviously, you know, plus COVID, so that means less and then lesser, right? Yeah, I, I was actually still pleasantly surprised. You know, I I get contacted by uh, by people on a still on a very regular basis. Okay. Um, uh, so there's there's still lots of opportunities there for senior product leaders, um, but I think because I took that time off, I had the opportunity to really think about what did I what do I want for my next role? What do I enjoy? Uh, what do I not enjoy? Um, and so I'm, I'm also being a bit more picky because okay. there are some things that I look for um, when I'm looking at a, at a new role that, that are absolutely essential. So uh, can I learn something from this job? Like what am I going to learn? Uh, who am I going to learn it from? Um, are the people there of a similar philosophy regarding, you know, people, um, process, product, customer focus? Um, and then can I have an impact? Like can I be successful in this? Right. So there's... There's a few different criteria, um, uh, but but also, do I actually like the product? Like, it, am I interested in this product? Right. So, if it was a product for I don't know, 
uh, a SaaS platform for, you know, tax reform or something. Uh, I'm not interested in that. Um, you know, uh, so, so yeah, it is a product that I can relate to as, as, as a customer. Can I, can I be passionate about it? Because I, I want to commit long-term to, yeah. to a product, right, and, and to a team. So, yeah, you, you don't want to be switching roles every couple of years. Nice, nice. All right, so let's get on to the final part of the show. So I asked you to choose a song that you would recommend to the listeners of the Product Uncensored show, uh, a song uh-huh. that would sort of, um, you know, uh, would visualize yourself in song in that sense. And you chose a very interesting song. You chose, is it called Visage? Yeah, so the band is Visage. The song is Fade to Grey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a bit of a story about it. So, so for people who know me well, um, I'm a big fan of techno music, right? Uh, that's probably why I love Berlin so much. Um, big fan of techno. Um, it, 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 it dominates my, my music listening uh, in, in terms of the stuff that I listen to. Uh, but I, I love a whole lot, lot of songs, so it was hard to pick this one. Um, but I think techno is my favorite. And, and I'm, I was trying to figure out, like, where did that begin? Like, what started all of this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was flipping through my, my iPhone, uh, my iTunes libraries, and I was thinking, what is the earliest song that I remember that I absolutely love, which was from this genre? And it turns out that it was late 1980. I was about 13 years old, just mm-hmm. going to high school. And it was Fade to Grey uh, by Visage. Uh, it's one of the earliest kind of synth pop yep. new wave bands out of, out of the UK. You know, I grew up in Australia, so everyone was listening to like Jimmy Barnes, Cold Chisel, NXS, you know, those like... No Duran really Duran fans big... at that time? No, Duran Duran wasn't around at the time. Wow. Um, that much this earlier, is, huh? This is pre-Duran Duran and any of those bands. You know, that, that was the sort of the mid-80s. Right. Um, and um, yeah, so so this this is the beginning of my love of techno music. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I tried I tried um, listening to the song and and checking out the lyrics, and it's got like what French in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what's the song about? Um, no, it's it's just a really interesting. I actually don't really know what the song's about, <laughs> but I just remember it uh, being like the the earliest song that I absolutely loved. Um, okay. Yeah, actually, I, I'm thinking about lyrics. I'm not not entirely sure what the song's about. <laughs> okay, so no problem. Yeah, it's just so so. It also sounds like just like the first guest that I had on the show. You're more melody rhythm guy than lyrics guy. Would that be fair, or is it just for the song that? No, I think lyrics are important, but I it's just such an old song. I I don't remember the story behind it. Right, right. Yeah. And and you also chose a video that was a rare video rather than the official video that came from Visage, actually. Um, yeah. Is any any reason for that? Uh, it was just aesthetically more pleasing. Um, the 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 actual official released video was just kind of weird. <laughs> yes, I was going to say if you're going for the shock factor, the the official video would have done it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. look, at, you have to remember at the time, the synthesizer was a new musical instrument, right? Oh. Before that, it was all you know traditional rock band guitars and drums kind of stuff. It's rock and roll. Um, and... So this is this, this predates all of that kind of music, and it, mm-hmm. and it was an entirely new sound, right? So. People were very experimental at the time. They were really trying to, you know, look at 
weird new formats for expressing themselves, not only in the music, but also in the music videos as well. So it is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'll let you guys, uh, I'll let you listeners decide which which one you like. Um, at the end of the video, obviously, I will post a link um, to, to the song that uh, Ken has just mentioned. Um, but yeah, uh, I just wanted to thank you so much, Ken, for taking the time to be on the show. I'm waking up early as well because I know it's like what now? It's like 10, 10 a.m. there, right? Yeah, so, it's 10 a.m. It's not, it's, it's not that early, not but that still. Late. Not that early. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for being on the show. I wish you all the best in you know your next steps. And hopefully one day we'll see you back in Asia, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So again, thank you very much. And uh, yeah. So if you've enjoyed today's show, um, please, uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, like the video, subscribe. Or if you're listening to the podcast, please download, follow, and also, if you want to find out more about Product Uncensored, please visit our website at www.productuncensored.com. Uh, we have some writings there as well. Well, we at the moment, it's just me. But yeah, uh, I write about um, Southeast Asia product management as well. That's all for today, and we'll see you next time.